Hey now everyone, this is Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, coming to you with another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Today is February 5th, 2024, and we are featuring a little-known but uh, uh, awesome show. Uh, we touched on it a, f- a year or so ago, uh, we'll get into that in a minute, but this is a show from February 5th, 1978, 46 years ago today at the Uni Dome, that's the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Um, and it was, uh, you know, typical cold night in the Midwest and uh, the dead showed up in Iowa and great things went down. And by the end of the evening, everybody had uh, worked up a good sweat and was having some fun. Uh, so much so this is out as Dick's Picks, I believe number 18. Uh, but let's get right into the opening tune here and check out the first track we got. Yeah, you know, starting off a show with a killer birth is always a great way to go. We've talked about that before. First show I ever saw the Grateful Dead play. And what I loved about this birth, and really this is like uh, a roadmap for this entire show that we're going to be featuring here tonight um, from 46 years ago in lovely Cedar Falls, Iowa. Jerry's on fire. Uh, His guitar playing is just top-notch, and the rest of the band keeps up with him just fine and does their job as well, including Phil who we'll highlight on a track a little bit later in the show. Uh, but Jerry's just having an on night. Uh, the vocals are nice. I, I, you know, I wouldn't say there's anything necessarily special about them. Otherwise, you know, he sings them fairly strongly, doesn't you know, screw up too many of the words along the way, which is always a good thing for him. Um, but he's just smoking on the guitar and uh, just filling up the space so nicely and you know, just stretching things out. Um, an amazing night for that. This show's always been a little bit under the radar, I think, um, uh, both in terms of, uh, you know, when it first came out on Dick's Picks, I remember there was a lot of talk about, you know, what are we doing featuring a show from, uh, uh, you know, the middle of Iowa in 1978, 
but when you listen to it and you hear the tunes, it's amazing. And now, of course, with the advent of archive.org, uh, you can bring down the entire show. And it's, it's uh, really, really not just a good example of the Grateful Dead in 1978, which it is, not just a good example of the Grateful Dead in the second half of the 1970s, which it is, not just a great show in terms of, you know, the Grateful Dead during any particular era, just a great Grateful Dead show. This one is top flight. Uh, Rob and I discovered, uh, rediscovered uh, this show from the Unidome because it's the second part of a two-parter on Dick's Picks 18. And um, there's a lot of great stuff. Uh, Rob really fell in love with it because of the Scarlet Fire, which we're going to get to shortly. Um, but uh, I just love it all now that I've listened to the entire show from start to finish. And you know, from Chicago, Cedar Falls is just not really that far away. And too bad this was in 1978, not, you know, 2024, because otherwise we'd be right there with the boys in, uh, in, in lovely, the lovely Unidome uh, up in uh, Cedar Falls. And pretty much, I think, the, about the middle of the state, really, in terms of uh, any direction. It's not, it's not right on the Illinois border. It's not really on anybody's border. It's just kind of sitting there. And, um, you know, God love the Grateful Dead. They play there a few times. Not in in uh, Cedar Falls, not necessarily at the Unidome. But uh, this night, that's where they were. And they kick it off with the great Bertha with Jerry just rocking his solo. Now, the next two we're going to play is Samson and Delilah. But this is really funny and very interesting um, because the intro goes on and on and on and on and on. And I was very surprised at how long the intro went on and on and on and on. And when I checked it out, what we learn is is that as they step up to play and they get to the point uh, after the introduction where it's time to start singing the song, and this is primarily a Bobby tune, uh, his microphone's not working. So they have to improvise and they have to swing back out and keep going around and playing. So I, I, I got the, the latter part of the intro into what should be the beginning of the, the vocals. Um, and if you know the song, you'll know right when you're there. If you don't know the song that well, go listen to it live a couple of times and then come back and listen to it here and... You'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and then, you know, just hear Jerry, you know, kind of just run with it a little bit and, you know, watching out for his little buddy. And all of a sudden, uh, they finally get it figured out. And, uh, you know, Bobby's beautiful voice comes booming through the microphone. So let's listen to this from the Unidome in Northern Iowa 46 years ago today.
So you can look at it one of two ways. Either, you know, you're disappointed a little bit here because, you know, we all love, you know, Bobby's too ready for him to hop in. On the other hand, uh, Jerry and the boys just get to keep jamming, jamming, jamming. Now, don't be fooled by that little singing right at the very beginning like Dan and I were all of a sudden. Um, that was a very common way for them to start the song uh, at that point. Uh, Jerry and uh, Donna and Bobby would step up to the microphone and do that initial little if I had my way bit, and then they'd go into the opening jam. But obviously, Bobby's voice is not there. And then uh, subsequently, um, his voice doesn't join in at all. So rather than singing the tune, which maybe he could, maybe he couldn't, who knows, Jerry, you know, back in 78, I'm liking to think maybe he could. But nevertheless, he, he just, uh, you know, takes off with it and uh, the rest of the band picks up. Uh, the, the intro with doing that is too long for us to just run it as a continuous clip till they finally start singing. But they do get there eventually. And, uh, you know, again, if you can download the show and listen to it, you can really get a chance to just hear the way they uh, really play themselves into this tune and how cool it is um, just because it's uh, uh, <clears throat> a song that they really loved. And, you know, you can tell just by the numbers, right? 365 times, first played on June 3rd, 1976 at the Paramount Theater in Portland, Oregon. Last played on July 9th, 1995 at Soldier Field in Chicago. Um, often, often, oftentimes played on Sunday. Uh, Bobby would step up to the microphone and lead it off by saying, it being Sunday, and then boom, they dive right into it with the drummers really, you know, cranking it out at the very beginning, uh, the, the more 1980s and 90s style of the song. Um, but uh, either way, it's a great tune. And of course, that day, this day, February 5th, 1978, was in fact a Sunday. So no surprise that the Grateful Dead were uh, playing um, uh, Samson and Delilah on that day. Good Bible tune on a Bible day in a Bible town, right in the middle of Bible country of the United States, but uh, not too Bible that the Grateful Dead couldn't come in and do their thing and uh, really just have some fun with the folks in Iowa. Uh, and it's a great show and everybody comes away from it really happy. And we'll go back to the show in a minute. We've got a little bit of music news going on here uh, that I want to get to. Uh, this is probably the biggest news in the Grateful Dead world in a little bit of time, but in the who had the over-under on how long it was going to take for them to announce it. No, they're really not done playing as Dead & Company. They're coming back. Well, all it takes is for some hotel or group of hotels or whoever the hell did it in Las Vegas to build a fancy schmancy venue like The Sphere, which we all heard about a few weeks back, thanks to good buddy and friend of the show, Alex Wellens. Um, and uh, then we talked about the fact that Fish is doing a four-nighter there, although the tickets were absolutely impossible to get. And now, this past week, uh, the uh, Dead & Company announced that they are going to do a residency there. It was originally billed as like a seven to eight week residency, but I think that demand for tickets was so great that it's already been extended out into early July, possibly, uh, starting sometime in mid-May. It was gonna go from mid-May to the beginning of June, uh, but they've really stretched it out. Uh, the demand was huge for it. And of course, on the one hand, you say, of course it is. On the other hand, you say, really? Well, okay, but why not, right? I mean, it, it is Dead & Company. We've, we've all talked about that. John Mayer is a great guitar player, uh, does an admirable job filling in for Jerry, except for the fact that he's not Jerry. So it all depends, again, what you're going to see these guys for. And, and I've seen my share of Dead & Co. shows, and I've had a good time at them. They're really a lot of fun, but it's going to still be that band playing in a very cool theater. And to me, there is a pull there because, of course, the Grateful Dead have always been kind of cutting edge in terms of technology. And uh, their light shows back uh, 
uh, beginning, you know, in, in the mid 1980s, uh, and then moving forward, were just you know really cutting edge for what bands were doing at the time, uh, handled and, and organized by guys who uh, were very well trained in the art and you know longtime members of the Grateful Dead. So, you know, just like a good sound mixer, they knew where the band was going. They knew how to have the lights rocking and roaring and you know bringing the crowd to their feet and blinding you with the white light when they sing sometimes the lights just shining on me and trucking and all of that kind of stuff fish does a great job with it too and quite frankly we'll get a little taste of what a good rock and roll band can do with that venue i'm sorry i don't mean to diss you too and i say that what i should have said is uh, a jam band um coming out with uh you know all of the stuff that they always do uh, i've you know, heard uh, and alex told us that the youtube backgrounds were uh, magnificent in their own right and I have no doubt that Bono and the boys rocked it hard but uh, you know this is a little bit different and uh, you know for those of us who are deadheads on the one hand um, you know it's kind of a cool thought on the other hand um, the tickets are really freaking expensive and that's you know where I, I ultimately I'm uh, my group all kind of made the decision that we're not just gonna you know knuckle down right now and start shelling out whatever you needed to shell out this week uh, to get a package with, you know, two nights in a hotel and a night at the show and, I don't know, $2,000 or something like that, maybe more, um, which maybe in the scheme of things isn't the worst amount of money in the world, but it's still a heck of a lot of money, I think, for most people. And I'd really like to see the sphere, but I think I'd like to see the sphere, you know, with a band that I feel is, you know, really peaking and, you know, more at the top of their game than, you know, playing to you know kind of keep the flame going and i don't mean any disrespect to dead and company when i say that i think that they are a very good band and i've i've voiced my opinion on that on this show often um but at those kind of prices i think you just have to kind of take a step back and decide um you know whether that's a bus you can afford to step onto or not and hats off and, and all my love to the folks that get there and make it there and support them and i'm still not saying i'm not going to go um, you know, I'm just saying that I'm going to have to take a wait and see attitude with this. And, uh, you know, somehow things always have a way of working out. So maybe even if it's a last minute workout and uh, figure out a way to get out there now that they've added more shows to at least see one of them, if not two. And uh, have a little fun in the dome with, uh, you know, Grateful Dead related night, which um, those of us that have seen the dead in Vegas and just those of us that have seen the dead uh, can certainly appreciate and have a lot of fun with. Um, even if we don't have Jerry up on stage singing, and who knows, maybe they'll have some, uh, you know, 3D, uh, you know, avatar image of Jerry. I, it's Las Vegas. I would put nothing past them, but uh, this is going to be big. Uh, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be fun. If you're a fan of the Grateful Dead, three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, for a bunch of weeks. I think they're taking Memorial Day weekend off, and uh, maybe a couple of others along the way. But um, otherwise, you know, they're, they're going to be in residency at the Sphere in Las Vegas for a while. And even if you're in Las Vegas and you can't afford the shows, you don't want to go to the shows, you don't have time to go to the shows, just go by the Sphere because the outside light show uh, will be just as amazing with uh, all the dead logos flashing all over it and uh, all sorts of other cool stuff that I'm sure uh, will really be fun and uh, very cool to see. So uh, the Grateful Dead doing a residency at the Sphere in Las Vegas. Um, and why not? Hats off to them. Our next story in the world of music is something that's really, I think, starting to gain uh, some serious traction now. Um, 
the people who are into these things would tell you, no, this gained traction a long time ago. But more mainstream traction, I think, where people are really beginning to focus in on it. And what I'm talking about is the days between. And this days between is not the days between during the first week in August when we're commemorating the days between the birth and the death of uh, Jerry Garcia, August 1st and August 9th, uh, in their respective years. Um, this is the days, D-A-Z-E, between uh, that has now become an official part of Jazz Fest in New Orleans. Jazz Fest has traditionally always gone down on the last weekend in April and the first weekend in May. Um, and there's a week in between. And since, you know, not everybody can afford to be down there for all that time, and even, you know, the folks who can say, well, not that, uh, not that uh, New Orleans isn't an amazing town and great place to be, um, but, you know, if I've just been there for Jazz Fest and seen a whole weekend of music, you know, do I really want to stick around? Well, now you have a good reason to, because the days between has gone from kind of being an informal thing to now a very formal part of the whole experience. Uh, and this year it's going down on Tuesday, April 30th, Wednesday, May 1st, which is the week in between the two Jazz Fest weekends. So if you're down there and you're inclined to stick around, or if you live down there um, and, um, you know, you're, you're, you've got the bug after the first weekend and you're not ready to stop boogieing, uh, sitting around waiting for the, the next weekend to come around. And really by Thursday, uh, May 2nd, it'll all kick off again. So um, you're going to have to jones it out through Monday, uh, April 29th. And if you can do that, uh, you know, then more power to you, you've made it. But uh, a really impressive lineup has been put together for both days and uh, certainly something that makes it worthwhile if you're a, a music lover and, and a fan of jam band music, a fan of improvisational music, a fan of New Orleans-style music and uh, uh, rock with Southern roots, uh, and all that kind of stuff, because let's 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 just kind of flip through this uh, uh, weekend, or not weekend, but uh, days between week lineup on Tuesday, April 30th. Uh, you're going to have lettuce uh, with John Schofield sitting in, and you know that probably worth your price of admission right there. Lettuce is a very very creative uh, jam or performance band or whatever you want to call them. Uh, that have uh, really kind of made their way into the whole scene on the Grateful Dead jam band side of the world. Uh, they've got some great uh, people playing with them, including Eric Krasna, who's a founding member. Uh, but bringing John Schofield in is a real nice touch. John Schofield is an amazing, amazing guitarist, uh, really plays a, a number of different string-like, uh, guitar-like instruments. And uh, he, he does things on his own. He does things with other groups. Um, and uh, we're going to talk more about him in a second. Um, but John Schofield is really, really uh, just a great addition to Lettuce. And I, I think that if you're there on that Tuesday and you have a chance to go see them, you will be thoroughly impressed and enjoy it very much. Also, uh, sharing the stages that night, they have two stages set up for both nights uh, for the days between. And I imagine you're just bopping back and forth. Uh, as one band finishes and they set up that stage for the next group, you run over to the other side where it should hopefully be all set up for you and ready to go. Uh, but in addition to Lettuce with John Schofield, you've got the Dirty Dozen uh, Brass Band playing, and uh, they're always a lot of fun. Uh, now you have the Krasno More Project playing, which again is Eric Krasno um, uh, with uh, um, uh, Mr. Moore from uh, uh, Galactic. Stephen Moore, I believe, is his name. And uh, they are really, really cool 
group of musicians who get together and uh, just really jam out and have a great time doing it. Uh, they're both kind of eclectic, Stanton more, excuse me. They're both very eclectic and uh, really bring it all together. Uh, Stanton, uh, as I say, was the uh, uh, drummer for the band, still is the drummer for the band Galactic, a founding member. And Eric Krasno has been around on the jam scene for a long, long time and has done some uh, stuff with the guys from uh, The Dead from time to time, a lot of his own stuff, other, other jazz band, uh, jam bands out there. And uh, their, their, their conglomeration, the Krasno Moore Project, will also be playing that Night Dogs in a Pile, one of the newer bands on the jam band scene. Cool, 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 who I can't, you have to be honest with you, I can't tell you a lot about. And the Rumblers featuring Chief Joseph Boudreau Jr., um, which I'm going to imagine is much more of a New Orleans scene kind of thing. So uh, your friends from New Orleans can probably fill you in on that very nicely. Probably uh, Rob Hunt could fill you in on that. Alex Wellens could fill you in on that. I cannot, though, but I'm sure if you go online and Google it, you'll find out all you need to know about uh, Chief Joseph and the, uh, and the Rumblers. So that's already a great night, right? If you're down there and for the first weekend and you've made it through the first Thursday through Sunday, maybe it starts Friday through Sunday, um, you know, you've taken Monday night off just because you need a night to recuperate. You can't be doing this uh, every single night in a row, for God's sakes. How young do we think we are? Uh, and then Tuesday rolls around and there you are out there doing your thing with that, with that lineup. And you'd be forgiven, I think, for saying, Oh no, man! I'm taking Wednesday night off. That's that's a little too much because Thursday, the second weekend of Jazz Fest, kicks in, and one of those nights you got the Rolling Stones playing. So I mean, we're we're talking big, big stuff going down there. Um, but when you hear the lineup for Wednesday, May first, it's kind of hard to say you're not going to go because uh, miss a little, miss a lot, right? The feature band that night is going to be Government Mule. So when we say Government Mule, right, that's Warren Haynes's Warren Haynes's band, and we say. That right there is already great. Those guys are awesome. They come out, they they just crank it out, they jam. Uh, he's a Southern boy, so he you know gets the whole feel for uh, what's going on down at Jazz Fest. And that would be great, but that's not it. Joining them is a cast of legends, one and all, John Schofield, who we just talked about. And John Schofield has a history of playing with Government Mule. And when he does, uh, it is a, a conglomeration affectionately known as Schomule. Um, which is just them playing the uh, Government Mule songs with John joining in. And uh, they, they really connect, I think, Warren and John. And great things happen when they do that. Also playing the, with Government Mule that night will be Chuck Lavelle, uh, a, a keyboardist of Allman Brothers and Rolling Stones fame. Um, and uh, a guy who's really left his mark on the industry. Uh, very, very talented. And be exciting to see him sit in with the government mule team. Ivan Neville, who is a New Orleans legend and uh, speaks for himself. Carl Denson, also a legend from that part of the world. And we've talked about Carl Denson and and uh, his band, um, Tiny Universe, and how awesome they are. And he, they'll get him up on stage with his saxophone. Uh, the Dirty Dozen Brass Band is going to join. And Daniel Donato. So, you know, it's going to be government mule and a cast of many. Um, who the heck knows what they're going to play or what they're going to do, but it's going to sound awesome. Uh, very, very exciting stuff. So, you know, that right there, yes, is a great reason uh, to roll over and make sure that you're there on Wednesday, May 1st. But if that's not enough, you're going to also get a set from Galactic with Jelly Joseph. You're going to get a set from Carl Denson's Tiny Universe. So we just got done talking about Carl, and we've talked about Carl's band, Tiny Universe. Uh, absolutely one of my favorite 
bands to see out there these days, just great musicians playing great tunes, and uh, they just really do a, a tremendous job. Uh, Daniel Donato's Cosmic Country is going to play. Karina Reichman, who I have to confess I don't know a whole lot about, and another group calling themselves the Iceman Special, which I know absolutely nothing about. But uh, the people who go to Days Between will find all about this great music for us and let us know. I believe uh, my good friends John and Marnie are going to be down there, Rick and Ben, and a lot of their big crew. Uh, folks down in New Orleans just out to have a good time and listen to some great music. And if you live down there, this is why you do. This is exactly why you live in New Orleans. Yes, Mardi Gras is great. There's no question about it. Um, and, uh, you know, New Year's and uh, any other of the big celebrations that they have uh, in the New Orleans area is, is, is very cool. But Jazz Fest is just such a special, unique thing. You know, we like to call it Lollapalooza for adults. Uh, the, the type of food that they offer is uh, just a step up from the uh, regular fare that they offer over at Lollapalooza. Um, and and, and uh, festivals of, of that like. But, um, you know, and you're in New Orleans and they've got all these tremendous late night shows going on and now the days between, I mean, they can bring the Rolling Stones in, just one real legendary band after another. Um, and if you can go and if you're going to get to be there, uh, good for you, that's going to be a great thing. I do not think that I will get to um, Jazz Fest this year. I have been down there before and hope to be there again, but... We're going to so many shows this year, it's hard to keep up with all of them and make sure that we still have time to, to be able to get everywhere. So working on it, we'll see what happens. Um, now we're going to go back 46 years to the Unidome, and uh, we're going to really get to the heart and soul of this concert. And one of the reasons why for so many people, it's the very quiet, uh, you know, kind of not... Not, not as much talked about, but certainly favorite 1978 show for so many deadheads as we roll right into some Scarlet Begonias here. Scarlet Begonias and the Fire on the Mountain, which is about to follow, because you can't have one without the other. Uh, 
it just takes the show to a whole nother level. And, and let's listen to the clip we have from Fire. So yeah, Fire on the Mountain, just uh, another incredible version. And uh, as I say, Rob discovered it uh, about a year ago while doing a whole Scarlet Fire thing. And um, just absolutely uh, outstanding. And, and this fire has about a five or six minute introduction after it flips over from the Scarlet into the fire uh, before Jerry even starts singing. Um, sings a verse, jams for another 10 minutes this is a 16 minute version of it and it's just hot all the way through that guitar playing was so good that I couldn't find a way to get in the best licks and some of the lyrics so the lyrics had to go because the licks are just too great um, and, and, and what a great show to be at what a you know absolutely solid way to come out and open a second set and really just you know get this going right in front of everybody and have things really moving and um, uh just a wonderful one-two combination, the Scarlet Fire, always, and in this case, uh, really in particular, I think it uh, just really stands up very, very well over the test of time. You know, and it's interesting because for many people, the, the gold standard for Scarlet Fire is the uh, 5877 show at Barton Hall um, in Ithaca, New York, and of course, really, when you're sitting here looking at this show, this show is not even a full year later, right? That was in May of 77, this is in February of 78, so about three quarters of a year later, still a few months to go before the first anniversary of Barton Hall. And, and I would argue that this Scarlet Fire, uh, you know, is, is really right up there with the one from Barton Hall. And, you know, maybe if this, this show had uh, the Barton Hall Morning Dew tacked on to the end of it, people might be talking about this being one of the best Grateful Dead shows ever. Uh, but certainly, um, it gets it gets a lot of talk as the top show of 1978, uh, one of the top shows of that period. And again, the Scarlet Fire seems to be in everybody's top five, or most people's that I was seeing online when I was going through and uh, checking out 
uh, what people had to say about this show and the songs in general. So really no surprise it would be those tunes and, you know, really no surprise that the dead come out one night and, you know, not the hottest uh, stop on the tour um, and really throw down. The, the trick is finding those shows and, and being able to identify them. And, you know, of course, big thanks to Dick, Dick Lavatla, the former uh, dead archivist before his untimely passing. It's now David Lemieux, but, you know, Dick put out, got the whole thing started with Dick's picks. Um, and for people like me, it was, it was such an eye-opening thing because it was a chance to really get an opportunity to explore, you know, so many different eras of the Grateful Dead. Uh, but now, you know, instead of, you know, I had so many shows on tape, but, you know, the truth is by comparison, the quality on many of them uh, just you know didn't match up um, and it's you know it's nice to be able to buy these and and to have all of these shows and you know one by one uh, to kind of get introduced to such a good range of concerts because you know again not to slam Iowa or anything but you know whenever there's a show you know anywhere in California everybody's curious what the hell do they play you know if they're doing a show up in Brendan Byrne Arena you know, people will be on the cell phone, on the cell phones, or in the, the hallways, on the uh, payphones back in those days. You know, calling all their buddies. Oh my God, they, you know, they just play this or they just play that. But, um, you know, sometimes the flyover country, especially places like Northern Iowa, uh, you know, tend to get overlooked by the the big East Coast and West Coast heads. Um, and again, you know, sometimes those are the very best nights to be there to see the boys. And whether they do it just because they figure, what the heck. You know, we'll show you, we'll, we'll throw down a great show in the middle of nowhere, whether that's just the night they're feeling at the best. I can't tell you, but I can tell you this, um, that it's a wonderful second set. It's a wonderful show all the way around. Um, and, you know, Rob Hunt knows what he's talking about when he talks about how much he likes it. So I highly recommend it, um, even if you just want to go to YouTube and just pull down the Scarlet Fire combination uh, from this show. Uh, I think you'll really, really enjoy that. Maybe that's a good way to kind of lead you into the entirety of the show uh, if the rest of the clips that we're going to play here in a few minutes don't do it. But we'll find out. However, now is the time to flip over to uh, the other topics we talk about on this show, and that's primarily the world of marijuana. And Dan, what is our intro music today? Well, that is our good friend Peter Tosh, who recorded this song way, way back in 1976, 48 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, couldn't play the whole thing for you, unfortunately, but he goes on to sing about how singers smoke it and players of instruments too, legalize it. Yeah, that's the best thing you can do. Doctors smoke it, nurses smoke it, judges smoke it, even lawyers too. Amen. So you've got to legalize it and uh, don't criticize it, legalize it, and I will advertise it. It's good for the flu, it's good for asthma, good for tuberculosis, even umara composis. Uh, birds eat it, ants love it, fowls eat it, goats love to play with it. So he just goes on and on. And as always, Dan has found us a, uh, 
um, a great tune to feature as we head into the marijuana side of things. So thank you, Dan, for that. Um, and thank you, Peter Tosh, for doing your thing. So we've got uh, some interesting stories here to talk about today. Uh, the first one I want to go to, though, is, you know, one of the types of stories that I think just keeps coming out and we love to see. And actually, this story uh, is, is from this past summer, but that's uh, recent enough for it. And um, I found this story thanks to our good friends at WGN, one of the oldest and biggest stations around Chicago and parts of the country. And uh, they're certainly on top of things. And it's nice to see them getting involved in uh, reporting on cannabis, but not just cannabis news, studies too. So uh, WGN recently wrote that in nearly half of the United States, alcohol, cannabis, and tobacco are all legal for those over 21. However, the three substances come with different rules, taxes, and of course, health effects. So questions were posed to doctors around the country. How do alcohol, marijuana, and cigarettes rank when it comes to your health? All three doctors agreed on which is best. Now they had some uh, some, uh, conditions that, uh, stuff like it's difficult to conclusively rank them in order of risks since there's been no major randomized control head-to-head trials among the substances. Uh, We get that. Um, the amount you consume of each substance also greatly impacts your risks or, or bad effects. Um, another doctor pointed out that each individual has their own risk factors based on family history, pre-existing conditions, and more. But when it comes to generalizing for the average person, uh, they said that alcohol was the worst, followed by tobacco. Alcohol use is linked to over 200 health conditions and diseases damaging every organ system in the body. Depression, anxiety, dementia, cancer, heart, and liver disease and bone disease can all result from alcohol consumption. Similarly, tobacco use is largely connected to serious cancers, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and cardiovascular disease. Uh, Another one said, I would certainly rank alcohol as number one. I'm going to say that alcohol in moderation is okay, but too much alcohol is going to have an impact on many illnesses. Um, And then they they talk about how the harms of tobacco can be largely reversed when people stop smoking earlier in life. If people understand the risks of lung cancer based on how many years you've been smoking and how much you've been smoking, if you stop at an early age, your lungs can reinvigorate and get back to normal. But one of the other doctors disagreed and ranked tobacco worse due to the fact that it actually has no proven health benefits. He said, tobacco, I would argue, is the worst substance of the three. It has no conceivable benefit, even in light amounts and considerable risks. Tobacco has been linked to increases in heart disease, cancers, and premature mortality, among others. Alcohol, on the other hand, could have benefits at light or moderate amounts, but then risks come on with larger amounts. Uh, Talking about red wine in particular, having antioxidants, and pointing to studies that up to one glass a day can remove reduce inflammation in blood vessels. But here's the good part. All three doctors and others who they spoke with agreed on which ranked least harmful to the average person's health. I would put marijuana as the least harmful, one said, mainly because we know that there's a lot of medicinal use for marijuana and used in the right format and in the controlled environment is fine. Chemotherapy patients often credit cannabis as the only thing keeping their appetites up, allowing them to get their nutritional needs. Another doctor said evaluating cannabis healthfulness and harmfulness is more complicated than the other two. 
The available evidence suggests that cannabis could be of benefit when medically supervised as part of a treatment plan for certain conditions such as chronic pain, anxiety, trauma, insomnia, and muscular disorders. But he went on to say that cannabis use could make certain mental health issues worse as well as impair memory and concentration. He said the data suggests there is an extra risk to young adults whose brains aren't fully developed, which we've talked about and acknowledged on this show. Uh, plus, one of the doctors noted the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Health and Human Services have guidelines on how much alcohol adults can consume in moderation, up to two drinks a day for men, one drink for women. There are no such guidelines for safe cannabis or tobacco use. I think negative health consequences could be possible for all of the three substances, even in moderate amounts, depending on the person and situation. There's no foolproof vice. All three of the experts emphasize each person is unique. You should always talk to your doctor about your specific situation. All very true, uh, but cannot help us get away from the fact and the underlying conclusion that there is no hesitancy on anyone's part to say that marijuana is the least harmful of tobacco and alcohol. Why is this important? Because as we as a society grapple with various substances that we're going to allow to be sold to citizens, we have to be careful not to overreact and not to uh, inflate risks or falsely equate risks from one substance with another substance while we give the most harmful substances passes all day long. And those substances are alcohol and tobacco. And any town that says we don't want marijuana in our town but allows tobacco to be sold and or allows alcohol to be sold has to go take a good long look in the mirror and say, why are we doing this? Why are we supporting substances that, perform, that provide higher health risks and a greater mortality rate than marijuana, which in its straight form of just smoking marijuana right now, currently to medical sciences knowledge, has a zero mortality rate. And yes, like anything else, if you smoke too much marijuana or if you're that one or two people out of whatever large number who happen to have a negative experience with marijuana, that sucks. But we have that with everything. There's some people who can't smoke. There's some people who can't drink. Uh, right? We, we, alcoholics exist in this world. We don't say we can't have alcohol as a legal substance because of alcoholics. So we can't say that we can't have marijuana in this world because some people would appear to be a very, very small number uh, suffer from what they're calling you know, marijuana personality disorder, marijuana use disorder, marijuana uh, whatever type of disorder um, they want to call and talk about it. It's just something I think uh, we all have to be very, very careful about. Now, um, another problem that has faced the legalization of marijuana and, and we've also talked about is how do we run this balance between saying we don't want people who are high on marijuana who are still uh, under the uh, effects of having smoked marijuana operating motor vehicles. Uh, and this show has always consistently advocated uh, that, that smoking and, and uh, marijuana and driving go to bed should not be going together any more than alcohol and driving should be going together. Um, nobody nobody uh, ever advocates for intoxicated driving. The point that's made over and over and over again is that um, if you're going to choose between a vice, if people are going to go out and we're going to accept as a society that people on a Saturday night, on a Friday night, on a Thursday night, whatever night, are going to go out and they're going to go to a bar or they're going to go to dinner and maybe have a couple of glasses of wine, maybe mix that with a drink, maybe just have a couple of drinks. Um, 
or the alternative is that somebody's going to go out on one of those nights and, and go to a consumption lounge or go to a friend's house or go somewhere where it's legal to smoke marijuana and smoke. And both of them are going to get in their cars and drive home, and that's just the way it is. The question is, would we rather have people drink and drive or would we rather have people smoke and drive? Meaning, are we better off trying to get people who drink to change over to smoking marijuana? And then we say, well, but now they're going to be driving home high. But we say, yes, but statistically, it's going to be safer than driving home drunk. And that's just the way it is. And we've talked about all the reasons and all the studies that find that to be a fact. Uh, I don't think there's really much debate when it comes to that, and there shouldn't be. Uh, we've all know people who are very drunk and get behind the wheel of a car, and we know how terrifying it can potentially be. And we also know what it's like to get behind the, in a car with somebody behind the wheel of a car who's very high. Um, and I don't mean to laugh at it, but you know, there the problems are uh, that they tend to be driving very slow and maybe a little overly cautious, which you know, unfortunately can be just as dangerous and, and just as potentially hazardous uh, to other drivers on the road, uh, but you just don't see the same, I'm going to go get them and tear them up type of uh, rage, if you will, that you see with people who get really liquored up uh, and then hop behind the wheel of a car and ready to go take off. So the problem, though, is that there are some people who will get really, really high and then go drive. And how do we come up with a way, if we pull somebody over for erratic driving, we suspect that they might be high and we test them and it comes back and they find THC in the blood. We know that that's not a good indicator of anything, right? Because depending on the volume that you typically smoke, the marijuana will remain, the THC will remain in your bloodstream and will show up positive on tests for anywhere from 14 to 30 days and maybe even longer. But that doesn't mean that you've been getting high every one of those days. And if you get high on a Sunday night and the following Saturday you're in an auto accident and they test you and they come back and find THC in your blood, they're going to want to say, oh, you've smoked under the influence of marijuana. This is going to be an enhancer of the punishment and we're going to bring a stronger charge against you, a DUI charge. And I say, what the hell are you talking about? This is Saturday. I haven't smoked marijuana for the last six days. I'm not high. I'm not driving under the influence of anything. Um, right? This is just you're, you're, you're testing for something that we know doesn't leave the body for a period of time. So we've always been going back and forth. How do we do it? There's a, uh, a blood test that can be drawn. Um, the test metabolites, uh, but that that's much more of an invasive type of test ultimately um, and more of an expensive test. But now uh, we have, uh, thanks to marijuana moment here, scientists saying that they've identified an alternative way to test for recent marijuana use that's significantly more accurate than standard THC blood tests that sometimes misrepresent a person's potential impairment depending on how frequently they use cannabis. They're working uh, actively to build on that research with an, extend, uh, an extended study. The initial study, which was funded in part by the National Institute on Drug Abuse and published in the journal Clinical Toxicology, could have key criminal justice implications as police currently rely on basic THC blood tests for evidence of possible intoxication in criminal investigations, such as after car accidents. But as the research researchers from the University of Colorado point out, that testing standard can be unreliable, especially for frequent cannabis users. As we just mentioned, since THC accumulates and lingers in fat tissues, daily cannabis users may maintain constant elevation of THC in the blood even long after the psychoactive, psychoactive, psychoactive effects abate. Uh, 
Colorado, University of Colorado, said in a news release, uh, a more accurate method of testing for recent marijuana use they found is by analyzing the molar metabolite ratio of THC to THC-COOH in the blood. If a person's ratio of the active and inactive metabolites meets or exceeds a 0.18 cutoff, you can feel pretty confident, 98% certainty, that the person just used marijuana within the last 30 minutes. They tested this approach by having 24 occasional and 32 daily marijuana consumers participate in a driving simulator exercise. Participants had their blood analyzed at a baseline and then 30 minutes after a 15-minute smoking interval. The study revealed that the molar metabolite rate of THC to THC-COOH at a 0.18 cutoff yielded results with 98% specificity, meaning there is a 2% false positive rate, 93% sensitivity, meaning the test only fails to detect recent use 7% of the time, and 96% accuracy, a combination of those two rates. By comparison, testing for THC alone yielded 88% specificity, 73% sensitivity, and 80% accuracy. So the principle here is that you're looking for active drug use versus inactive drug use, uh, because THC and hydroxy-THC are active and carboxy-THC is inactive. So it makes soon that soon after you smoke cannabis, you're going to have relatively more of the uh, active form present. Uh, as the ratio of active form to inactive decreases, the more likely that the active form present uh, the tail end of residual or smoking uh, occurred many hours ago, rather than indicative of, of currently being under the impact or under the effect of, of marijuana. So this is important. This is a very, very key thing because not only is this going to have implications in the world of uh, driving, but it's going to have implications in the world of employment. And finally, this should put an end to the really draconian uh, employment policies that so many employers continue to use, which is if you test positive for THC, you're gone. Again, regardless of how stupid that is, because it's not a measure of whether you are currently uh, impaired while you are on the job. Um, and now that an employer can actually test, oh, you came up positive uh, for THC, but oh, when we use this other test, we find no, you, you probably have not consumed uh, in a long enough period of time uh, that you're not impaired coming into work right now. So of course, this then raises the question of whether employers are gonna care if their employees are getting high at night off of uh, work time because even if you smoke a joint in the evening and then go to bed by the time you wake up in the morning uh, the metabolites are very much on the carboxy side rather than the hydroxy side meaning that the THC is, is, is basically completely inactive uh, meaning that you're not impaired in any way um, and, and probably less impaired than somebody that went out on a bender the night before and pounded down who know many who knows how many gin and tonics or you know bourbons or, you know, scotches or tequilas or whatever, you know, you're drinking these days. And, you know, now we will allow, this will allow marijuana users to compete on a level playing field. Um, if, in fact, employers are willing to use it and, you know, use it in a good faith way, if they come in predisposed to get rid of anybody who smokes marijuana, well, you know, then it's not going to be that hard and you can do that. But you're, what you're going to find is you're missing out on a lot of quality people and that using marijuana as something to make a determination about a person's worth, both in general or as a potential employer, as a potential student, as a potential partner, as a potential anything, you know, just really isn't a very accurate way to go. 
um, and exhibits a you know predisposed prejudice that is unfortunate in this day and age, uh, especially with the uh, you know more uh, um, advanced thinking times we're living in, where states have said we're not going to sit around and wait for the federal government. We all know it's absurd to think that marijuana belongs on Schedule One, so the heck with that. We're just going to go ahead and um, you know this is what we're going to do, and you know it's a problem. It really, really is. But this is. Uh, nice to know that you know while we still fight this other battle uh, people cannot continue either intentionally or unintentionally to prejudice against cannabis people uh, by trying to make up things that aren't true by suggesting that simply just because you test positive for THC means that your actions were impaired uh, at any one particular time after the metabolites the THC metabolites had converted from a hydroxy state to a carboxy state and that's a good thing and now we have a, uh, a group of uh, Democratic senators that are calling on the DEA to deschedule marijuana entirely, and it's about damn time. Um, they say that the uh, recommendation to reschedule the drug to Schedule Three does not go far enough to reduce harm that has occurred from the current system. In a letter addressed to Attorney General Merrick Garland and DEA Administrator Ann Milgram, 11 Democratic senators, along with Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent, officially from Vermont, argue the administration should deschedule marijuana altogether. Marijuana's placement in the Controlled Substance Act has had a devastating impact on our communities and is increasingly out of step with state law and public opinion. If marijuana is rescheduled, it will be legalized. The question is, to what extent would it then become legalized on a nationwide basis? Uh, because if they're going to do it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, then you may have more states that might decide uh, that they're going to do it. The DEA is still conducting a review of the Health and Human Services, uh, uh, of the recommendations from uh, the Department of Health and Human Services that it should be uh, rescheduled to a Schedule 3. Uh, lawmakers have cited recent disclosure documents in which Health and Human Services acknowledge that marijuana likely does not meet the criteria to be considered Schedule 1. They also point out that nearly half of all states in the U.S. have legalized recreational marijuana since the last time the drug scheduling was considered way back in 2016. Um, of course it doesn't meet the criteria to be Schedule 1. Everybody knows that. If the DEA and Health and Human Services doesn't want to just come out and admit it, it's because they're embarrassed that for so many years they've been saying that it does uh, somehow uh, demonstrate that it belongs on that list, which is just absolutely stupid on every level, and we're not going to swing back into this. Um, so, uh, you know, this is where we wind up uh, in a situation where... Um, it's important to understand the differences between rescheduling and descheduling, and we've talked about that. Either one of them gives you relief from 280E. Either one of them gives you banking services, but only one of them continues to state, with no basis to say it, that marijuana is illegal, if not properly used under the terms of its scheduling spot on the Controlled Substances Act. And we've talked about what that means if it's Schedule 3 and the fact that we'll have every other Schedule 3 drug in the country is sold only by pharmacists, only with doctor prescriptions. So, you know, I don't know what that means for marijuana and nobody else does either. If it's descheduled, we don't have to worry about any of that. We just move right past it. And why wouldn't we? We just saw a study that's coming out that's telling us that as between marijuana, tobacco, and alcohol, two of them are sold legally with no restrictions other than age restrictions and some use restrictions, 
you know, but otherwise uh, you're not going to get arrested for possessing alcohol. You're not going to get arrested for purchasing alcohol. If you're a licensed seller, you're not going to get arrested for selling alcohol. Everybody just accepts it as a way of life, even though it kills so many, such a much larger percentage of people than marijuana ever could. But this is the world that we live in. It's one step at a time. I'm happy with the steps we've taken up to this point. Um, you know, now it's just a matter of uh, really moving things forward and and keeping them going, and you know, staying away from places like Texas, that's re recently initiated legal proceedings against marijuana decriminalization in five cities in Texas. Of course, no surprise, given that the Attorney General is Ken Paxton, um, who, based on uh, the charges that have been brought against him, uh, does not shake out as one of the. Uh, uh, better people you want to be an attorney general in your state, in my opinion, um, and only in my opinion. Um, and it's not a surprise that Mr. Paxton uh, and probably Governor uh, Greg Abbott are behind this have decided that even though local municipalities have decided that they want to decriminalize marijuana and allow it to move forward, uh, they here in the state are not uh, going to do it. We're talking about Austin, of course, San Marcos, Killeen, Elgin, and Denton all want to or either want to or have decriminalized marijuana. Um, Paxson argues that the cities have adopted policies that contradict Texas laws on marijuana possession and distribution. He emphasized the need to enforce drug laws uniformly across the state. Ah, if only that were true, just go ask our friends in the inner city and uh, other places why uh, people arrested are disproportionately back, black or Hispanic uh, or some other recognized minority. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden Paxton is on his high horse arguing to us about all sorts of things that are all high and mighty after he was impeached for a number of different things. And, you know, you can't just go around and play the um, public issue card while you're uh, being charged for bad acts in the rest of your official policies. And, and that's what he's doing here. He's saying part of this is based on health concerns, uh, linking marijuana to increased risks of psychosis and schizophrenia. Uh, he referenced studies to support his claim, and of course he did, because they all do until we go and we look at the studies. Um, but the studies that we have seen, uh, where people are willing to show all of their evidence and people are willing to come forward, typically show that they relieve comic pain, chronic pain, they help with substance abuse problems, it helps people get off of opioids, it helps people get off of psychotropic drugs. Uh, there's just so many positives. You know, to suggest, well, I can find one negative that's been popularly spoken about schizophrenia, but I just don't see where the numbers bear it out. I don't have any personal experiences with it and any of my friends or anybody I know who's ever smoked marijuana uh, becoming schizophrenic, certainly not with the frequency that people who smoke marijuana get lung cancer. So, you know, you can't just come up with, with way out there arguments that don't really mean anything. Science as a whole, I think, has, has, has looked past that and understands uh, the way this works. We just have to get the government on board with us. And it's a battle, folks. And we've got guys like Ken Paxton who don't really care about the truth and don't really care about anything, but they know a good issue when they see one and he's banging the drum very, very loudly. And uh, we're going to start banging the drum loudly and uh, pivot away from marijuana and back uh, uh, to the show that the uh, Grateful Dead is playing um, from the Unidome of the University of Northern Iowa 46 years ago today. And let's dive into a uh, really, really solid version of the other one.
Yeah, that's that's just killer guitar playing as as they go flying through that song. Jerry's feeling it; they're all feeling it. Phil's ever present in the background there, uh, dropping the bass bombs, keeping the the bass line going all the way through it. Uh, Bobby's singing the great lyrics. Um, Cowboy Neil at the wheel. It's a great it's a great image. It's a great thought. Um, and uh, you know, for those of us that have you know read up a little bit more on uh, the Merry Pranksters and um, you know, Cassidy's role in all of that, and Ken Kesey, and um, just really good stuff. The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test we've talked about as just being a great chronicle of that period of time when all of this was going down um, in the mid to beginning of the second half of the 1960s. Um, and all the acid tests, we featured music from the acid tests, uh, which were a big thing and uh, really helped solidify the dead as one of the leaders, if not the leader, in the psychedelic jam band movement at that time and really positioned them to be able to move forward and uh, you know, develop the uh, other side of them, the Americana side and uh, the bluegrass side and the countryside. And uh, by 1978, we're just getting incredible shows. Uh, and this one is no different. So we're going to head out here. Um, and when we do, we're going to take you out on... Uh, around and around, which uh, is not always everyone's favorite. And what I mean by that is it's not one of those tunes where everybody comes home and says, oh, wow, man, they played around and around tonight. Um, it's, a, uh, uh, it's a very good tune, though, and some nights they play it stronger than others. Sometimes it, 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 I've almost always seen it as either the final song of the second set or leading in as a bridge from the song out of space into the final song of the set. Um, and it's, it's a Chuck Berry tune. Um, you know, it, 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 I think that uh, it, it's always a fun tune, and this is just a really ripping version, and what you'll hear in a minute when we go out is how they're playing it at one tempo, and on a dime, all of a sudden, they just change into a completely different tempo and take the song to a whole nother level. Um, and, you know, and what a great way to really get the crowd uh, fired up and moving and, and, and really doing their thing. Um, the song was written and recorded by Chuck Berry in 1958, uh, was on the B-side to the single Johnny Be Good, you know, maybe one of the greatest uh, rock and roll songs of all time. Uh, the Rolling Stones have covered it. Uh, it was on their album 5x5 Five Five and on their second U.S. album 12x5 Five in 1964. Uh, besides the band members, it fe featured Ian Stewart on piano. In October 1964, they performed it on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, they played it on a regular basis on their tours in 64 and 65. Um, after more than a decade, they performed the song again at the Nebworth Festival on August 21st, 1976. It was included on the 1977 live album, Love You Live, by the way. An unsung, amazing, amazing live album. It, it, it may not quite be Get Your Yaya's Out, but it's just an amazing live album. Captures the Rolling Stones, you know, at their fiercest in the mid-1970s, and I highly recommend it. Um... So uh, it was on Love You Live. Uh, it was recorded at the El Macambo Club uh, during a gig in Toronto on that tour. Um, and after that, it was only performed occasionally by them, uh, most recently during the band's 2012 tour at Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, back on December 15th of that year. The song was also covered by David Bowie. Um, it was recorded in 1971, reduced by Ken Scott under the title Round and Round. It was originally slated for inclusion on his 1972 album, the rise and fall of Ziggy Dar the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust, and the Spiders from Mars. At the last minute, it was ousted for the song Starman. Uh, regarding the song, Bowie stated in '72, uh, it would have been kind of a number 
that Ziggy would have done on stage. He jammed it for old time's sake in the studio and our enthusiasm for it probably waned after we heard it a few more times. We replaced it with a thing called Starman. I don't think it's any great loss really, which is you know kind of harsh for David Bowie to say. First of all, Starman's a great tune and, and absolutely belongs on the Ziggy Stardust album. And if there was no other room on there for around and around, okay, you know, play it some other time. But um, it, it is a great tune. It is a lot of fun. And um, you know, Bowie's got to do his thing. It's also been covered by The Animals, by Eric Burden separately from The Animals. It's been covered by Pearl Jam. It's been covered by Meatloaf, by 38 Special, by uh, Maureen Tucker of Velvet Underground fame, by The Germs, uh, an American punk rock, punk rock band from back in the day, guided by Voices and, and any number of others. The Dead wound up playing it well over 400 times, a very high up in the overall song ratings. First played on November 8, 1970 at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York. Last played on July 6, 1995 at the Riverboard Amphitheater in Maryland Heights, uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, as we head out, I've got two birthdays coming up this week that I want to give shout-outs to. One is to my wonderful son, Johnny Skins, and the other is to uh, one of the greatest women in the world I've had the pleasure to know, and that's the uh, Jeannie Jeannie uh, from up Wisconsin Way. Uh, happy birthday to both of you. You're both great people, uh, very important in my life, and love to hang out and party with, with all of you all the time, and hopefully we will going forward. So uh, thank you for listening today and joining in with us once again. Um, we love uh, listener comments. We've been getting a few here and there. Dan sends them over to me. We try to respond and let people know that if you're listening to us and taking the time to speak, that we're going to listen to you and speak back. Uh, we do have some interviews that we're lining up with uh, some of our friends and uh, people who are very well connected into the industry. And as soon as we can find some free time for them, we're going to have them on as well. Uh, but in the meantime, fear not, we've got many, many Grateful Dead tunes, uh, Grateful Dead shows to feature and to talk about. Lots of great stuff going on in live music and uh, all good things cannabis. So thank you as always. Have a great week. Be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Enjoy this final tune. Thanks for listening to today's show. 
To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like, their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.